Well, happy Easter, everybody. So glad to be with you. And although I do wish we were together, we come in one spirit to celebrate that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Allow me to start off today with a story about a little boy who was an incurable optimist. He just always saw the good in everybody and everything. Now, his father was more of a realist, and he frankly got tired of his son seeing the silver lining in everything all the time. So he decides it's time to exert some tough love and teach his son a lesson. And he chooses Christmas morning to teach this lesson. So the little boy wakes up on Christmas morning and his father tells him that his present is in the driveway. The boy goes out to the driveway and there is a pickup truck with a bed full of horse manure. But to the father's surprise, instead of being disappointed, the little boy smiled, jumped into the bed of the pickup truck, and started digging down through the horse manure. His dad screamed at him, what could you possibly be smiling about, and why are you digging? And the little boy said, well, the way I see it, with this much horse manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> now, I tell you that story because our world for the last several weeks, we've been just like that pickup bed full of manure. It stunk. Lots of fear, lots of sickness, lots of death, lots of bad news for the global economy. And yet in the midst of that darkness, we have the light of Easter Sunday, proving once again that in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our heartache, we will always find Jesus. We can take comfort in Jesus' words from John 16, where he says, In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When you stand at the foot of the cross, it helps us in so many ways. Because the cross tells us that we're not alone, that God is not distant, and he cares about what we're going through. The late Fred Craddock, one of America's greatest preachers, he used to talk about it this way. He said, when your kids are playing outside and they fall and they scrape or skin their knee, what do they do? They come running to mom. And what does every mother do? She scoops them up and perpetuates the myth that there is magic spit. Let mama kiss it and make it well. And the child just rocks in mama's lap for a while, and somehow the tears dry, the pain subsides, and all is well. Is it the spit? No, it's mama's lap. It's mama's rocking. That's better than any medicine out there. Mama, why are you crying? I'm the one who skinned my knee. And mama says, because honey, when you hurt, I hurt. How else could we describe the cross except to say it's God scooping us up on his lap and saying, when you hurt, I hurt. The cross forces us to acknowledge that God is not aloof and distant, but that God is very visible, tangible, touchable, knowable, and nailable. So today, we're going to put Jesus on display because he's the one scripture always points to for the hope in this life and beyond. And we're gonna look at one of the best known passages on Christology in the entire New Testament. 
It's from Paul's words to the church at Colossae, starting in chapter one, verse 15. Here's what Paul says. The son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now let's start where Paul starts. Paul starts saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. God is spirit. He's supernatural. We can't see God in this mortal existence. But Jesus makes the invisible God visible because creator enters into creation. Jesus even said in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, any unknowns about God can be made known in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is a mere image of the character and nature of God. Now, when I got up today and I looked in the mirror, if I'm just being honest, it gets more disappointing every time I look at myself. Most of my hair has gone to be with the Lord. I'm gaining weight from being quarantined. But as tragic as it is, the mirror actually and accurately reflects my image, my true image. Jesus is the accurate image of the invisible God. His love is the Father's love. His truth is the Father's truth. His mercy and grace are the Father's mercy and grace. Now, there are certain things we can know about God by just observing creation. By observing creation, we know that our God is wise, that he's powerful, that he's very creative. But we can't learn what we need to know about God just by observing the world he made. You can't know that God is personal and that God loves you and that he's holy and just and righteous just by observing a beautiful sunset. That's general revelation. We need specific revelation about who God is. Philosophy, religion, spirituality, they all try to fill the gap with speculation. But God instead provides revelation through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the connection point from heaven to earth. He alone is the image of the invisible God. Paul continues on to say this. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. Let's break this down and talk about it. Now, at first glance, for Paul to say Jesus is the firstborn over all creation could be kind of a puzzling thing. 
It can make you think that Jesus was born first, that he was made by God or um, like born, which would mean that would imply that there was a moment in time that Jesus didn't exist. But that's not what Paul's saying here at all. In fact, the church ruled in the year 325, a long time ago, that to believe that Jesus is a created being is heresy. And that's, if you look on in this very passage itself, Paul is saying that in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Christ is the creator. He could not be a created being. The book of John also attests to this uh, in, in John's prologue. The first chapter of John, the first words of John are this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I'm going to keep going because this passage is just too good to stop there. Verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I love that. Now, we know that this word is a capital W word, and we know from verse 14 where he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, that John is using word to refer to Jesus. And there's a lot of beauty and mystery in that, the divine logos, but we don't have time for that right now. So let's jump back to Corinthians, or Colossians, excuse me. So if Jesus wasn't ever born, in other words, if there was never a moment in time where Jesus didn't exist, if there was never a beginning to Jesus, what does Paul mean by saying that he's the firstborn over all creation? Well, in the biblical culture, there was a lot wrapped up in this word firstborn, and it has to do with the birthright. In fact, this word that Paul uses, firstborn, and the word birthright in Greek are almost identical words. They come from the same root. Now, the firstborn son would receive the birthright, which was the greater inheritance. It was not only a double portion, that's twice as much of all the money and resources, livestock, whatever the family had when the father passed, twice as much as all of his brothers, he would also receive the inheritance of carrying on the family name, of whatever honor or uh, distinguishment that the father had, that all fell onto the firstborn son. Now, I'm not saying this is a good system because the ladies were totally overlooked here. Uh, daughters wouldn't get any inheritance. They were expected to marry and then to marry someone and then that family would take care of them. So I'm not saying this is a good system. I'm just saying that's how it was in this day. So if you think about it, Jesus was born as a physical human baby. He was born into the family of Mary and Joseph. So his physical body Jesus, when Joseph died, would have received an inheritance of a carpenter's son. It would have been pretty measly. He would have inherited a woodshed and a carpentry business. But we know that Joseph was not Jesus' father, that Jesus' true father is God Almighty. And we know that Jesus was never really born, that he didn't come into existence at that time in the small town of Bethlehem, but Jesus existed before all creation with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us that Jesus' inheritance, he's the firstborn, his inheritance is all creation. And Paul tells us the reason why is because he created it. 
in verse 16, it says for, and that could just be easily translated as because. He's, Paul's saying he's the firstborn of creation because in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus Christ was the creator and inheritor of everything we see. When you walk outside your front door and you hear the birds chirping and you hear the bees a-buzzing and you see this lush green grass and you look up and you see a, a clear blue sky with white puffy clouds. At least that's what it looks like today as I'm recording. I hope it looks like that on Easter Sunday too. Um, and you, you, the, the trees are budding and the flowers are blooming and there's a scent of spring in the air. All of these things Jesus Christ created. And it's not just there. It goes to the ends of the earth. I'm talking the Grand Canyon. I'm talking uh, Mount Everest. I'm talking the depths of the ocean that the scientists in 2020 don't even have record of. That our ocean is so deep and un unsearchable that there's a great portion of the earth that we walk on today that we know nothing about. And it doesn't just stop there, right? Paul says things in the heavens and on earth. I'm talking... The, the sun, the moon, the stars, when you walk out and see the night sky, these stars are light years away. That's an inconceivable unit of distance. That's the amount, that's the distance it takes for light to travel for an entire year. These stars are crazy far away, and that's just our Milky Way galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy is just one little part of this universe that just has this immense span. And the Bible says that God breathed out the stars, that Jesus Christ was there at the moment of creation, and just out of sheer love and joy and delight, he just came up with these plans and made this entire universe. And Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all that, that it, his inheritance is all that, meaning he has dominion and sovereignty over all that. And any honor that comes from creation, the glories of the songs of the birds and the, the light pulses that come from stars, all that glory goes straight to Jesus Christ because he's creator and inheritor of all things. And he's before all things. The point of what Paul's saying here in this small section is Jesus is supreme. Paul talks about invisible and visible, unseen and seen, and, and rulers and authorities. Listen, there's nothing that you could conceive of in your mind or feel, things that we can't see, love, joy, anxiety, worry, things that are too small for us to see, like this virus that's going around. There is nothing not even systems of authority, governmental systems, or even just social structures and, and cultural things that, that weigh heavily upon us that we can't see but we feel the effects of. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that is not under the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. Let me say this again. There is nothing that is not under the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. What Paul's saying here, and what we need to hear in this hour, maybe more than ever, is that Jesus Christ is supreme. We're going to be picking up where Nate left off and go to verse 17. It says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, we have already established that he created all things, but he didn't just create it and send it out on its own. No, he manages it. He controls it. 
every star in the universe with every planet that circles them and every moon that circles them becomes a balance that if altered in a way apart from its design could send all of creation spinning out of control. Look at this flashlight. All the parts are set up in a way that all I have to do is put in the batteries, a power source, and it performs as it should. It gives off light. Now, think about your body. Obviously a far more complex design, but still set up in a way that you just add a power source and it functions as it should. But did you ever wonder where the power source comes from? What keeps your heart beating? Science loves to tell us that life evolved over time and that's how we developed into what we are. But where did the life part come in? And how does it continue on its own? It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. In Psalm 19, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Let's continue on in Colossians. Verse 18 says he is the head of the body, the church. Now this is important. He is the head. He is in charge. Not the Pope, not the pastor of a megachurch, not Rick Warren or Andy Stanley. And by the way, they don't claim to be the head of the church. Peter is not the head of the church. The one and only head of the church is Jesus Christ who bought and paid for her with his body and his blood on the cross of Calvary. He knows us by name. He knows every hair on our heads. And for some of us, that's easier than for others. He knows who are the sheep and who are the goats. And if you're not sure what that means, please read Matthew 25. It's a great chapter. He knows every one of your sins, past and future, and he loves you anyway. In the same way that he holds the universe together, he holds the church together. He is the head. We don't get to define morality because that's his job. We don't get to explain to Jesus that we need to change some things because, by the way, our society has changed. He is God, and we are not. And when we truly realize who he is and who leads us and how he loves us, we will finally know real peace. Let's continue on in verse 18. We already read he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that he might have the supremacy. This is where our hope comes from. This perhaps is the most important verse for your future. It says that he is the firstborn from among the dead. And by saying that he is the firstborn, it means that there are more to follow. The more to follow is you, is me. Through the resurrection, Jesus created something new that is a new creation. 
The first creation didn't cost him anything. He simply spoke it into existence. This new creation cost him everything. Pain, heartbreak, his life. The first creation starts with heaven, then the earth, then man. This new creation begins with man, then ends with a new heaven and a new earth. When Christ returns to take his bride, the church, out of this world, then your physical body, sown in corruption, will be raised and changed. You will become something new, not perishable, but imperishable. Christ is the first, the one, the supreme. In John 14, beginning, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus and the Father are one. In fact, Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Jesus isn't higher or lower, but equal. He's not an angel. Jesus is, Jesus was, before the angels were created. Going back to Hebrews 1, it says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so that he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Let us, with all of God's angels, with all of creation, worship him, for he is worthy. Thank you, Nate and Michael, for those powerful words. Now, Paul continues to put Jesus on display by saying that Jesus is fully God. This is huge. Of all the things you could know, this is perhaps the most important thing you can know. Who your God is, who you worship, that's the most important question. You hear people say all the time, well, Jesus never said that he was God. Well, sure he did. That's why they killed him. They didn't kill him because he befriended the outcasts and marginalized, or because he blessed little children, or because he performed miracles. No, they killed him because he claimed to be God. We read it specifically in John 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. 
Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Listen, friends, Jesus is the only founder of any major world religion who ever said he was God. Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, Joseph Smith, none of them said they were God, but Jesus said he was God. And they killed him and he came back and he said, I told you so, you guys should have listened. Paul says, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The eternal timeless God entering into history. This God was pleased, happy, and right at home in Jesus. Jesus Christ is God. That's it. For us, that's the mic drop, the exclamation point, the icing on the cake. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, creator, redeemer, sustainer, and savior. That's Jesus, the fullness of God. Now here's the last point. Jesus is our great reconciler. Here's our dilemma. God created us for relationship, but we rebelled against him. As a result, our relationship with God is severed and it needs to be reconciled. So God sends Jesus to be a reconciler and a reconciler is someone who brings peace. You have two parties that are at odds where there's a relational breakdown and the reconciler brings peace between these two parties. Jesus brought about this peace, not through talks or negotiations, but as Paul says in verse 20, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Mankind does not have peace with God. We don't have the peace of God because we've declared war on God. That's what sin is. Sin is a declaration of war against God. So there needs to be peace, but the only way there can be peace is if the sin and transgression is dealt with. The wage for sin is death. So God sends his son to turn his enemies into his family. Jesus lives the life that we have not lived, a life without sin. He went to the cross and substituted himself to die the death we should have died, to pay the price we could not pay, to give the gift we could never earn. That's our Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. This is why we talk about the cross of Christ. It's one thing to love those who love you, but quite another to love those who hate you. And at the cross, we see that God loves those who hate him. And since Christ is our peacemaker, if you don't know him, you have no peace with God because peace only comes through the blood of the cross. It comes by acknowledging that you're a sinner and that Jesus alone is the savior. It's acknowledging that either Christ pays for your sin on the cross or you pay for your sins in hell. But one way or the other, the debt will be paid. So do you let the eternal God pay it for you, or do you pay for it eternally? We give God our sin, and God gives us salvation and eternal life. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Now, this is important, folks, because no other religious leader ever claimed he was qualified to offer his life for your sins. Only Jesus said that. That's why the cross that reconciles us to God is the very thing that keeps Christianity from being reconciled to any other religion. Because the way we say you make peace with God is so different than any other faith. 
This is so important because Jesus talked about hell more than anyone. And the Bible is clear that apart from Jesus, you are damned to an eternal destiny of consequence, punishment, and justice. Scripture promises that the day is coming when every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. You will bend your knee to Jesus in this life for salvation, or you will bend your knee to Jesus in subjugation upon his return. And trust me when I say the reality you don't see yet is the reality you will experience forever. Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come. And that king, folks, is coming to this planet. And that kingdom is coming to these nations. And that throne will reside at the center of all creation. And sitting on it will be Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the eternal creator who holds everything together, the head of the church who conquered death, the fullness of God who through his blood and death on the cross reconciled all things to God. Have you been reconciled to your creator through Christ? If this is the decision you're interested in making, would you please reach out to us and text us at 260-215-4334. And I assure you, someone from our ministry will be in touch. Now would you please pray with me? God, we wanna just thank you for making your enemies into your friends for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves and giving us what none of us deserves. We acknowledge, Father, that you paid the price, the ultimate price, so that peace could be established with your creation. And you showed the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. Thank you that we can walk in confidence knowing that our salvation is secure in Christ. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone today who does not have that confidence, they will reach out to us or someone soon, but most importantly, that they reach out to you. We pray this in the name of the Supreme Jesus. Amen.